News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. As the invasion and the war continues on in Ukraine today, many questions about what Canada is doing in response, and that seems to get updated and changes every day. Joining us now to talk more about that is Global News National Online journalist Amanda Connolly in Ottawa. Hello, Amanda. Hello, thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. So what is the latest here now? The Prime Minister's trip is over, is that right? Yes, that is correct. He wrapped up uh, late last week, and this was quite a whirlwind trip. Again, it saw him in meetings uh, with a number of officials from NATO, from European ally countries as well, and all of it really focused, as you mentioned there, on what happens next, what more the West and NATO allies in particular can or should be doing to deal with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Of course, this has been unprovoked. It is escalating. We've seen over the weekend uh, as Russian forces hit a military training facility in Ukraine as uh, they also hit a maternity hospital in the port city of Mariupol. And so certainly a lot of concern here about what could happen next and what degree of escalation could be coming, particularly as we head into this week, which, of course, is the third week now for this invasion. Right. OK. And Canada seems to, in some things, have been ahead of the curve here, haven't they, though, Amanda? Because things like most favored nation trading status, something that Canada kind of revoked a couple of weeks ago, other countries seem to be catching up now. Yeah, things like targeting the oil and gas sector as well. Of course, for Canada, that wasn't necessarily a, 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 a huge or particularly difficult thing to do because we do not import a lot of Russian oil comparative to uh, countries in Europe, for example. But again, as you mentioned there, certainly Canada has been taking a number of steps earlier than other allies have. Many of them now following through. We're looking at similar things. We know, though, as well, that Canada has been a very vocal voice at the table for pushing harder on this. We've heard this continually from our government throughout it, from uh, Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland in particular, who has been um, very clear, very loud in, in speaking out against Vladimir Putin's invasion into Ukraine. Freeland, of course, herself is Ukrainian by heritage. She speaks the language fluently and has spoken a number of times as well in both Ukrainian and Russian directly to the people who've been affected here, really trying to get that message directly heard by them. And so, um, again, she, we, we don't know necessarily exactly what role that has played here. She's kind of declined to comment on that front. But certainly we have seen her be very vocal, very loud. And the government as a whole really taking uh, some pretty severe steps here in, in efforts against Russia. Right. So, Amanda, then what do we know about perhaps potential next steps? Like what, what kind of rumblings are we hearing about the next responses? Well, this really is the big question right here. We know that there are other responses that are on the table that are being uh, prepared that the government is willing to go and and put in place. We don't know exactly what those are. Of course, we we certainly hear a lot of different things um, raised and put to the put to the government. Their response really has always been all options right now remain on the table. We did hear repeatedly last week as well that not only are things on the table, that there are different levels of sanctions uh, and measures in particular being prepared, being looked at. Um, but again, when those come into play and what what exactly those will actually be, we won't really know until they actually uh, come out. That has largely been the pattern for the government so far is playing their cards relatively close to their chest. The reason that they've given us that they've given to, to journalists asking about that has been a desire not to create loopholes to allow Russian officials and oligarchs to move assets around to know what's going to happen and really escape some of the impact of those measures. And what about other parties, Amanda? Like, what has the mood been like among the other political parties in Ottawa for the actions that Canada has taken? 
The mood has been one largely of unity on this front, I would say. And again, of course, I say that with the caveat that anything in politics, there's always some, right. um, some, some caveats there when it comes to unity. But by and large, of course, we have seen a very strong show of support from all parties about um, the need to act strongly and clearly in the face of this Russian aggression. We've also heard uh, some some calls from the Conservative Party, for example, for uh, tougher measures, for setting perhaps a, a date by which point Canada and NATO allies would want to see Russia out um, of Ukraine and pulling back their invasion. That, of course, um, has not happened uh, yet from Canada or from allies. But um, again, all of it kind of fitting into this broader tone and the picture here as we prepare to hear from the Ukrainian uh, president in Parliament tomorrow. Okay, sounds good. Amanda, thank you for the update. Thank you. Time for us to check in with our Raji Sohal this morning. And Raji, given that it is pie day, what's your favorite pie? (laughs) Don't be disappointed, Simi, but if it's a really good quality pie, then it's an apple pie cinnamon that's super heavy on the cinnamon and it has to have ice cream. Hmm. Okay, interesting. I, that's all the only answers I've gotten this morning are all <laughs> apple pie. And I thought, wait, no what? Pie? No, maybe it's just the time of year. I thought maybe I'd get a lemon meringue given that we're close to spring. Every person I've heard from so far today has been apple, apple, apple. And I thought, what? I, and I call it's got to be pumpkin pie. I guess I love pumpkin pie. But if you said to me right now, like what pie, what, what slice would you like to have in front of you? Yes. <sighs> Probably go with a blueberry. No, yeah, I think I would. The controversial one. You think so? Yeah, because blueberry doesn't have enough variation in it. It's got to have a different note. See, I said apple pie, and it has to have strong notes of cinnamon. It has to be cinnamon up front with a bit of apple. Thoughts on this one? Okay, (laughs) you've got some strong thoughts. I like. I like. Also, depends on the bakery that you go to, right? Because there's some great and amazing pie places these days, and you know, I love their specialty pies as well. But if you're talking about like at home, just a pie. I love I like apple pie too, but I feel like sometimes you like I love a key lime pie. Those are delicious. I love a good Easiest pie to make. Is it? Oh, it's so simple. And if you make it fresh, it's like you'll never want one from with a store ever. Actual key limes though, because I tried to juice key limes once and those suckers are small and that takes forever. Yes, yes it does. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this is I'm, too much work. I'm gonna buy my next key lime pie. <laughs> You know what else is amazing? Strawberry rhubarb. Mm, Oh, it's almost time for that too. Almost time for strawberries, almost time for rhubarb. You know what? I'm getting hungry. So we'll, (laughs) I'll just ask people to weigh in with their favorite pie for pie day. Simi at cknw.com. But let's talk about you because you had quite the weekend. Yes. I know everybody went out on the weekend and, you know, to varying degrees, maybe you went to the grocery store. I went to a concert and I have been looking forward to this moment for, I guess now I can say literal years. It's been over two years. I saw a show at the Vogue Theater. Everyone was uh, masked in lineup outside. So I thought, okay, we, we don't have to wear masks inside. So I wonder if people will take them off. The venue checked everyone's vac status diligently outside and made sure people had stamps, didn't allow people to go in and out. They were just monitoring everything like that closely. And then inside, uh, barely anyone was masked. And I was wondering if I would feel comfortable taking my mask off. I actually uh, I got an amazing seat. Uh, a lot of people were standing up and, and huddled close together in front of the stage. But uh, I found an awesome seat with my friend and there was like no seats just immediately around us. So, Simi Sarah, I didn't wear a mask. <laughs> I took my mask off. What? And you, Raji really, Sohal, super careful. Yeah, 
you know, it was really bizarre. I almost want to say it was hard to do at first. Uh, then the concert started and wow, I had no idea how much I'd missed live music. It just was so overwhelmingly incredible. It was such a joyous experience. People, when I looked around me at one point, people had tears on their faces. I think just the overwhelming moment of, wow, are we actually doing this now in a way that feels normal? It was incredible. Really? That sounds very emotional for people. I wonder how long that's going to last before we get right back into it. Like we have a tendency, humans do, to out of sight, out of mind, right? Like as soon as you move on to the next thing. And the last couple of years have been, had such a huge impact. I wonder if we'll forget that quickly once things, once these, you know, maybe a year from now or two years from now. Oh, I think even a couple of weeks from now. I remember just uh, recently you and I were talking about what people will keep from the pandemic. Like what are they, what measures are they going to change or keep for their habits? And at the grocery store on the weekend, I thought I was the only one wearing a mask. People were not masked up. People were coughing openly and the amount of face touching. Remember when we all stopped touching our faces two years ago? People were not wearing masks, coughing and touching their face. And it was like the only thing I could see. I could barely see the produce around them. (laughs) And you had predicted that. You told me, I think people will go back to their old ways pretty quickly. And I thought, no, they're never going to touch their faces again. I think what happened was, you know, it's only been a couple of days too. The announcement was Thursday. And I think the first couple of days I kept seeing things on social media, people saying, oh, I'm going to stick with it, or I still saw lots of people wearing masks. But, you know, I even found from like Friday to Saturday to Sunday that... greater ease. Yes. And so you saw that diminish, diminish, diminish by Sunday, because I think you see other people doing it and you think, well, I guess it's okay now to try it. And next thing you know, uh, by Sunday, it was way different from Friday when I was out and walking around. It's also not just masks. There's so many other parts of our lives that the pandemic measures touched. Like, uh, for example, on the weekend, my five-year-old had her first sleepover, her first night away from us. It was just with her Naniji and Nanaji, her grandparents. Um, But we hadn't done that because we'd just been in our family, our little bubble. The other kid didn't go because she's not vaccinated because she's too young. So we didn't feel keen on that yet. But the five-year-old went and it was such an incredible experience for her. Yeah. And I thought, wow, yes, this would have happened a lot earlier for her, a lot younger. She would have had her first sleepover if it hadn't been for for the pandemic. So I find that these next next several weeks, I think, are going to be ones of, you know, mixed right. emotions. But, you know, Raj, I have to say, like, even listening to you talk about this, I don't know if the Raji of six months ago could have looked in six months into the future and said that she felt okay could about going have. to a concert. Definitely could not have, you know, people were uh, shoulder to shoulder at the venue and they were dancing and and, uh, just having the time of their lives. I wasn't ready to do that quite yet. I wasn't going to dance with people uh, on the dance floor and um, not wear a mask. That was not going to happen. But I can see how that is in my near future. And you know what? I've also booked a trip. I'm going to go on an international trip. Who is this person that we're talking to? I know. I don't recognize myself, Simi. (laughs) I honestly think, yeah, we if a couple months ago, this would have been unfathomable to you. You were absolutely adamant that you couldn't do this. Yeah, we were really cautious. We took that whole bubble thing very seriously. I didn't uh, see my parents over Christmas. I hadn't been in their house for so long. 
Um, and we followed everything. And now, you know, yesterday on my show, I was interviewing uh, Brian, Dr. Brian Conway about whether he thought this is a good idea for the mask mandate to be lifted at this point. And he said yes. And I was a little bit surprised to hear him say yes, like so definitively that like this is the time. But he said they also predict there might be an uptick in cases. So I think everyone's still got to keep that stuff in mind. And, you know, I have a child that's not vaccinated and my parents are, well, they're probably listening. So I can't say they're old. They are yeah, not don't young. Don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so there's still some things that I keep in mind with it. But uh, yeah, I am really ready. Mm. I'm really ready for us to to get out and do things normally. So interesting. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. Now, you may notice a bit of a trucker convoy this morning on Highway 1 between 200th and Brunette happening uh, this morning in the next hour, potentially. But it's not what you think it is with a trucker convoy. They want to raise attention this time about high gas prices. Uh, joining us now from somebody who is participating is Ryan Hess, one of the protesters and owner of Hess Trucking. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning. What's going to be happening uh, basically, it's going to be, um, well, first I want to say it has nothing to do with the Freedom Convoy. I want to get that out of the way. Um, but it is just going to be a slow roll between 200 and Brunette. Uh, we're expecting a couple hundred trucks to be participating in this. And we just want to raise awareness to the high diesel prices that are pretty much crippling a lot of companies. And we're hoping that the government steps in with uh, either fuel surcharges or rebates. Um, or subsidies that we can apply. So eventually what's going to happen if uh, these prices continue, uh, everyone, the general uh, public, will see uh, that effect in in stores and everything else. So it's um, not good right now, that's for sure. Yeah, tell me about the impact then. Like, What are diesel prices? I know they're very high right now, but what kind of an impact has that had on on your company? What's it doing? Oh, well, it's massive. I mean, diesel is our biggest expense, usually around between, depending on the company, between 30 and 50% of their expenses is diesel. Well, when that goes up 50% in the last couple months, months which is such a hike so quickly, um, to try to adjust to that uh, is impossible. To try to get rates up to compensate for that is, again, really hard to do. And even if they do raise rates and pay us higher prices, that's only going to be passed on down the line to the final end user. So, I mean, they could pay us $1,000 an hour, but eventually then you're going to be paying $25 for a gallon of milk. I mean, it's just how it is. Or if we don't raise rates, then unfortunately we'll have to shut down and we control this economy with our keys. Wow. Okay. So has there been any, like, have you reached out to government officials? Like, what have you heard? Uh, unfortunately, this is kind of the first part of it. I mean, we're hoping to raise awareness with this today, get some government officials uh, on board and some backing here and relook at, I mean, we also have a carbon tax that's supposed to go up April 1st. I mean, I can't imagine that also now coming into play when things have changed so quickly. Um, so hopefully this will be the first of it and we can get some resolution. Yeah. Have you been in a situation like this before, Ryan, like when gas prices have gone up? Not to this effect. Um, this, is a, this is something that's never happened, I've seen in the industry. Um, I've been doing this for 16 years myself, been in the family for over 45 years. And uh, to see such a dramatic change as quickly uh, has, is unprecedented. And so to not have the government step in and say, hey, listen, this is going to be a massive effect on the economy, um, cause shutdowns in major sectors, which is going to affect everyone overall. How long can your business continue on with the prices like this? 
I, I don't know, honestly. I mean, it literally changes day to day. I mean, tr- just treading water is kind of what we're doing right now. Uh, and we are basically reviewing it weekly and seeing what we can do. Now, some, some companies have stepped up to pay higher rates, but I know, like I said, that's just going to be passed down to the end consumer until they can't afford it, and then what happens? Right. Are you able to do that? Like, how quickly can you change the prices for the people who hire you? It, the trucking industry is, is different overall, but, I mean, some have contracts that can't get out of it, can't change. There's a bids that have gone out to major projects that can't adjust, and other people, you know, more in the private sector, you can, you can try to adjust, but... There's so many times I can go back to my customers weekly and ask for a raise, basically, and it's, it's not easy to do. Okay, so then what's going to happen this morning? What can people expect along that way? Uh, basically, it's going to be, we're just going to be taking up the one, the two lanes, and the right lane, uh, heading uh, westbound mostly on between 200 and Brunette. Uh, should last an hour, and we disperse from there. It's peaceful, um, and we're not blocking anyone from getting to work. There's still going to be a lane open, anybody trying to get to a hospital or anything like that. So it's just going to be awareness and uh, get our word out there. Yeah, were you worried about that, though? You're thinking, here, we're going to do this, and people are going to think that you're part of the other trucker convoy. Oh, it was it was a big, when we kind of tried to get together. I mean, this isn't organized by me or just one other person or anything like that. It's by everyone, and that was one major concern. Is we don't want it to look anything like the Freedom Convoy just because we don't want it being diluted into that or anything and having, you know, our message uh, misread. All right. Well, listen, thanks for joining us this morning. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Well, is this another sign that things are slowly getting back to normal or at least pre-pandemic levels? It's a two-year hiatus that Vancouver's oldest pub took and it is reopening today. Let's find out what's going on. Joining us now is Harrison Soaker, Chief Growth Officer of the Donnelly Group. Good morning, Harrison. Good morning, Timmy. Sounds like it's a great day for you guys. Uh, it might be a little wet, but that's not going to stop us from pulling some pints. <laughs> okay, so what's going on? Tell us all about it. Well, I think you really summarized it there. We uh, we took a two-year break. Um, <clears throat> our whole company kind of went through it. We got right through the coals, as you might imagine. Uh, and the lamp letter, <clears throat> one of the oldest, actually the oldest drinking establishments in Vancouver, uh, it needed some work. It needed some love. Uh, and so we've been doing that work. We've been giving it that love. Uh, we've overhauled a couple parts of it. We've refreshed it, and uh, we're getting it ready to reopen and uh, bring it back to the neighborhood this week. So what happened then, Harrison, at the beginning of the pandemic? Was it, oh, are we going to close? Or did you think, no, this might be an opportunity for us to do some things? Well, I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, we uh, very naively envisioned a two-week closure for our pubs. <laughs> it turned out wow, to be yeah, two, I know. A two-year closure for Lamplighter. Um, and, uh, and, and we've sort of one by one brought them all back online as appropriate. Um, but, uh, Lamplighter, <clears throat> the, the building itself, Dominion building was, was, um, was constructed at the turn of the century. And by turn of the century, I mean the 19th century, um, it was built in 1899. So it is old. Uh, and so it needed some major mechanical upgrades. We worked with our, uh, our landlord there, um, to give it those major mechanical upgrades. And then we gave it a little bit of a refresh, um, and, and, you know, just kind of jumped on the opportunity of it being closed down. It got new bathrooms and uh, new tiling, some new floors, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, at the same time, we gave it some new paint, some new wallpaper, a little bit of new love. I guess that was a bit of a, a leap of faith for you, though, too, wasn't it, for the company? Because you didn't know what things would look like or when it would look like it might get back to normal. Absolutely. Yeah, we were uh, 
we, were, we, we ended up giving, giving a lot of time to give it new bathrooms. So the bathrooms are beautiful. <laughs> that, that's a big deal. Like nice bathrooms. That's something that people really look at when they go into a place, right? Yeah, especially a place that's uh, uh, been running as a pub for nearly 100 years. That's amazing. Tell us about the history of the lamplighter. Well, the building itself is called the Dominion uh, Building. It was originally a hotel. It was opened in, um, uh, in the turn of the century, like I said. It was built in 1899. And uh, it was actually the end of the line for the Canadian Railway. Um, originally, there was a really neat department store uh, called Rubinowitz's, and um, it operated until 1925. In 1925, a pub opened, aptly named Hole in the Wall. Uh, it was the first pub license uh, in Vancouver, um, and the notorious lamplighters, and by lamplighters, I mean uh, the folks who quite literally lit the, lit the lamps in Gastown, the gas-powered lamps, uh, in order for the, you know, the social dynamic to occur, so everyone could see each other while they're some, partaking in some merrymaking down there. Um, they would hang out at this hole in the wall all the time. Uh, one gentleman in particular, John Clue, who was a lamplighter, uh, it, he was a regular. And so it was renamed uh, Lamplighter. We subsequently, many, many, many decades later, opened a cocktail club uh, connected to Lamplighter. We called it Clue Club, and we named it after John. That's so cool. Uh, so what's the business like right now, though, Harrison? You must be watching it very closely. Like, are people coming back? Do you see a return to pre-pandemic levels? Yeah, absolutely, Simi. It, 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 you know, with last week's mask mandates being lifted, there's a level of comfort and familiarity that people are coming back to for sure. Uh, people are really interested in engaging in, in some in-the-flesh social uh, interaction, uh, which is excellent for us. Um, and, and we're there to support that uh, as the social lubricant. And we've really improved our food programs, our bar and beverage programs. Uh, we've had time to work on our service. Uh, we've really been quite introspective over these last two years. Uh, and business coming back uh, with, with a real fever, for sure, in, in a good way. It's, that, it's great. That is so interesting because, you know, all during the pandemic, as you know, we heard, oh, that's it. Like, we've changed. We're not ever going to go back to the way it was before. But when I'm talking to businesses like yours, all I hear is that that's exactly what people are doing, is wanting to go back to the way it was before. <laughs> yeah, it's ha- it's happening. Listen, everyone's been a little cooped up and uh, for the last couple of years. And, and if there's anything to really sort of uh, shed that anxiety and get back to a sense of normalcy, it's, uh, it's sharing some food and, and having a drink with one another. Okay, so then how is the Lamplighter going to celebrate this? They're opening, you're opening your doors today. What will people notice? Are you going to have any special events, occasions? Well, we, we knew we had to get it open uh, for our two-year anniversary of being closed. But more importantly, we had to get it open in advance of uh, St. Patty's Day, uh, which is really, really important to us. So uh, the staff need a couple warm-up laps before... Um, St. Patty's Day, which is later in the week. Um, but uh, I think one thing to uh, really note when you go into the lamplighters, the food program is unbelievable. Um, when we left, the food program was great, uh, but it's better now. We're working with Chef Mike Robbins of Annalena fame. Um, he's our consulting chef, and uh, he's really influenced our food program quite a bit. And there's a couple uh, specialty items on that, on that food menu now from Mike himself. Okay, so you're gearing up for a big week. Well, Harrison, I guess it's all hands on deck. By the way, what's it been like hiring people? 
this time around, it's been great, actually. Everyone's really excited, again, to get into that social atmosphere. This time last year when we had some some restrictions lifted and we could um, start rehiring, it was, it was pretty challenging because everyone was working, to your point, at a bank or somewhere that was specifically not a pub or a nightclub. Right. Um, and now everyone's coming back in the woodwork. And, again, they want... They want that social that that social uh, change. They want to, they want to connect with people. Um, they want to be in the presence of others, and so they're coming they're coming back to us. That's so interesting. So you're saying people we thought that got out of the restaurant hospitality industry for good. They seem like they've missed it a little bit. Absolutely. Wow, interesting, Harrison. Thank you so much, and listen, good luck. My pleasure. Thank you. There's an interesting rally held in Penticton over the weekend. It was about climate change, but it also wasn't just about climate change. It was much more specific than that. So let's talk about what was going on there. Lori Goldman joins us now, the rally organizer and one of the first things first Okanagan Board of Directors members. Lori, thank you very much for joining us. Hi, Sadie. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me to join you today. Tell me about the rally, because I understand there was a very specific message that you had with climate change at this rally. Yeah, um, there were about uh, just over 30 people who got together. Um, Our MP was there, Richard Cannings, and um, our event was to open up a a um, hoped-for job centre, Green Job Centre at Service Canada office. And the idea is that if we moved now very quickly on a Just Transition Act with the federal government, that we would have a lot more green jobs in the uh, renewable energy sector. Um, because we know that the two days before this event, the ministers uh, Wilkinson and O'Regan um, were doing more, con- um, open up more consultation for a Just Transition Act, but we've been consulting forever. People know what to do. And if we moved now, we would have lots of good jobs, building retro, uh, doing retrofits, building housing, raising people up into um, out of poverty, mm-hmm. and um, also dealing with our uh, um, land back and Indigenous rights and training to get people out of fossil fuel industry and into industries such as geothermal, solar, and wind. It's so interesting because I thought, you know, you're, this wasn't just a protest about climate change. What you're saying is, yeah, yeah, we know about that, but we're also in the process of making progress here, and you've got to help us find those jobs to make it happen. Absolutely. There's a group that's in uh, um, Alberta that started. It's a nonprofit called Iron and Earth, and they are already training people who want to leave those industries, oil, gas, and coal. And our short training gets them into solar installation and geothermal and, and uh, wind. And it doesn't take much, but it certainly takes funding and training and um, even investment in those industries so that we can be self-sufficient. You know, last year was really terrible. My little town of Penticton went through that heat dome. We had 44-degree heat. We had fires just outside the city. We had smoke for days. We have these issues here. We have to move to protect our food, to protect our water, and to protect our health. We've got to get out of these industries and there are ways that we can do that. 
Do you do you think you have to give people a reason, like an encouragement, a job that they can point to and say, oh, I'm going to take that job? You know, I think that there are many people who are living very far from home, working in fields and, and areas where they don't really want to be. And they would like to be moving into um, back home with their families, perhaps making less money, but doing work in their community with their families. And there are jobs available. We need to build houses right there. We have um, ready-made jobs. We also have heat pump installations that, that people are clamoring for. We need more installers. Those people can transfer their skills to that. We need to retrofit homes. Like in Hamilton last year, they started an eight story retrofit on a, a seniors building to bring it down 85 or 95 percent um, in emissions um, to we have to lower our emissions mm-hmm. and these are all areas that will do that the IPCC report was very clear that we have to take action but the government has to stop funding fossil fuel and instead take that money and put it into things that people can do. And there are jobs out there. So, Laurie, where can people find out more about this? If they're thinking about a career change, that's a good point, as they may be thinking about it, but they have nowhere to go. Where can they go? What can they look at? Um, well, I certainly wish we had a, a Ministry of Just Transition in Canada and we had uh, jobs available at the Service Canada office. Um, right now, there is Iron and Earth, which has um, is just starting a, a new uh, program, I think, in April to um, uh, train people or to um, inform people about how they can get their training to move into the jobs that are already in Canada. This is not just out west. Um, and so that's ironandearth.org. Mm-hmm. Um Okay, and and I think that we really the citizens can do so much. We can only do so much. We right. can cycle. We can recycle. We can do all sorts of small things. But we need government action to um, invest into um, industries. Right. Well, uh- to expand, and we have to. We really have to look at sustainability. I think the war in, in uh, Ukraine has really shown us that we have to be sustainable with our electricity and we have to get off fossil fuels so that we can weather what is coming towards us. All right, Laurie, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi. Take care. I think we've all heard about by now the Vancouver bylaw, which means that you pay a fee on disposable cups. It has certainly generated a lot of discussion. Is there a better way to do that? Is there a better way to discourage people from the use of these single-use disposable cups? Well, actually, a Vancouver nonprofit organization thinks that they have actually come up with a better way. Joining us now is Sean Miles, the director of the Binners Project. Sean, thanks for being here. Uh, yeah, thanks uh, for having me. First off, what is the Binners Project? Yeah, uh, Binners Project. We're a charitable social enterprise based in the downtown east side of Vancouver. Uh, we work with binners or dumpster divers, uh, waste pickers, to help um, increase their their voice, destigmatize the work that they do in the community, as well as provide economic opportunities through our social enterprise programs. Okay, and tell me about the coffee cup revolution. What is that? Yeah, that's one of our advocacy events uh, and kind of the founding event of the the Binners Project. 
Um, it is a one-day uh, depot for coffee cups. Um, essentially, uh, you know, talking about the amount of interest and uh, readiness that vendors have in in potentially including coffee cups in the returnable system, like cans and bottles. So, putting that ten cent deposit on them. Uh, so, we've done this event for. Um, Ooh, uh, almost uh, eight years, um, and it, in that time, we've collected hundreds of thousands of cups. And in, as an example, just before the pandemic, when we did the the daily the event, it's a three-hour depot. We collected just shy of a hundred thousand cups in that one three-hour time period, uh, which just speaks to the the ability that. Um, we and others would have to reduce the uh, impact on the waste stream to, uh, to reduce how much those cups are ending up in landfill, which is uh, one of the key problems that the, the city and others have pointed out. Right. And so their solution was to kind of discourage the general public from using these cups. But the problem is that we don't really have much of an alternative to use yeah. those if people are kind of you know out and about. What is your suggestion here? Yeah, and not only um, that is, is especially those that low in, lower income individuals and and some a lot of the binners or all the binners we work with, you know, there's there really isn't a viable option for cup sharing or there there you know some of these alternatives that are being suggested. So that was initially why we had reached out. We we don't like we don't see um, a deposit necessarily being. Uh, a measure to reduce um, people's use because a deposit obviously allows you to recoup that cost. So there isn't necessarily a cost, but it is a way to at least reduce the impact of those cups. I think the city's intent of, of something to try and encourage um, cup sharing or people to use reusable cups is valid. I, I don't think in this case, it will probably have the impact they're wanting. And it also, again, impacts those who don't have that option even more. So so I think there is still need to push for things like cup sharing or other ways, um, but not in a way where you're uh, penalizing people for doing the thing you don't want, more that kind of positive reinforcement piece. You want to you uh, benefit them in some way to do the thing you do want, right? Right. Okay. So then how, how do you think that uh, having a deposit on these cups would be better? So... We think a, a deposit um, will be better in that, again, it's going to um, allow binners and others and, and, and individuals to ensure that cups are not going into the landfill stream and, and, and then ending up in our, in our, on our dumps and instead are recycled and, and put into that uh, circular economy. So it's going to have a, a potential for a, a, a significant impact just in that process alone. I think that would be a piece of that, of how that happened, alongside of other things like trying to determine what um, viable and, and accessible options are for reusable cups or other things to reduce the, the dependence on those cups as well. But I, I think it's kind of a two-pronged piece. Right. Are they recyclable? Most of those yeah, disposable cups? Yeah, and in currently, it, and even in BC, they are recyclable. Currently, you can recycle coffee cups through your blue box um, if you live in a residential home. Um, that is across the province. Recycle BC does process and recycle um, coffee cups. But the problem is, is that most people don't have coffee cups when they're at home, right? They're out in the city. They're, they're out around town. They're at businesses. So uh, and and there isn't uh, options for um, commercial or lar- even large residential um, homes to 
to have those um, uh, the, to be accessing that program. So it is possible to be done. Uh, it, it is more costly than uh, some forms of recycling. So that's where like the, the, there would need to be an investment from the province and, and, a, and a real intention put into to making that change to a more broader system, similar again to how we have with maybe cans and bottles at bottle depots. Um, yeah. Right. Okay. So then for the person who right now is paying, say, 25 cents right because mm-hmm. of the cup fee you would th- what do you think they would pay instead 10 cents uh, it, it's yeah it would be tough to see uh, to say with of course not knowing what the system would look like but i think something that is uh yeah around that 10 cent market like they've done with the other returnables um that it again can be recouped by that individual or can be you know put in a bin or somewhere for for a binner or someone else to go and and uh to recoup that cost um, would be ideal. And, and we've always said that coffee cups are an easily recyclable item and that they're lightweight. Um, they can be easily stacked. And so for binners, it's super easy for them to be able to collect a bunch of these and, and get them into the, the proper hands um, if there was that um, financial uh, kind of gain, uh, a part of it uh, available for them. So treating them like plastic bottles or yeah. um, like tin cans? Or like now milk cartons as well, which just obviously uh, got added to that system in February. So it's, similarly, there's, there's definitely the, the potential for, for it to happen. It's just really going to take, again, that, that um, investment. And that's not something the city of Vancouver obviously can do. It's really a provincial, uh, right. a provincial focus. This is so interesting. So, uh, any feedback from the province? Are you planning on meeting with them? We haven't heard specifically from the problems. We've had opportunities to to voice um, voice kind of our thoughts on this um, with them through some of their consultation processes. Um, we're happy to continue having discussions with them. We've and we've spoken with the city about their their current bylaw. And you know, frankly, from our perspective, we're just really focused now on how to reduce the impact of that fee on those who are more marginalized. Um, but yeah, we're, we're definitely, uh, uh, going to continue advocating. We're going to continue doing coffee cup revolution until there's no need to essentially, right? If, if that, if this, uh, goes ahead and we do see that deposit come in, um, we wouldn't be needing to do that event or it wouldn't need to look the same way because we would have achieved that goal, which is to have that included as part of the system. Right. Sean, thank you so much for your time this morning. Yeah, no worries. Thanks. And we spent a lot of time talking about the toxic drug supply that we have in our province and what to do about it, how to prevent some of the overdoses and deaths that we have seen there. And it's, I mean, we come to a loss, right? We come to a draw on that because we're not sure what's going to make a difference here, what's going to help. Well, that's the same situation that so many families find themselves in when they're dealing with somebody, a loved one, who is in the throes of an addiction. Joining us now is our contributor, Raji Sohal, to talk more about this. Now, Raji, you talked to some a family that is going through this right now. Yes, I mean, you mentioned the numbers, over 200 deaths in BC in January alone, but the deaths make me think, okay, how many more people are just affected by this? We're going through it right now. And I talked to Spencer, a full-time working manager, and he and his wife are stuck in this terrible loop of trying to get help for their 22-year-old daughter, who I'll call Lucy. Spencer is also not Spencer's real name. Lucy's addicted to street drugs, crack and heroin, but her dad says it's a fentanyl mixture. How did she get here? Her dad said that in high school, her friends and her experimented with drugs recreationally, marijuana, Um, after school, after she was 18, uh, then it became meth in social settings with friends. 
And Lucy was really close with her grandfather. When he died, Lucy became depressed and tried street drugs. She was hooked right away. Here's her dad, Spencer. What would happen is that, um, you know, as, as she ramped up her use of these, uh, of the drugs and, and, uh, substances, um, you know, she would disappear, uh, from the house for days at a time. And then eventually she moved in with a boyfriend and they, you know, they, they kind of hold up in, in an apartment that we would get access to her sporadically. And we were just watching her, you know, lose weight and, you know, become more and more, you know, as she called it tweakish. And then about late September, you know, she broke up with the boyfriend. Um, she kind of hit a bottom, you know, she was, you know, wandering the streets and going from kind of, uh, party house to party house or den to den, as they call it. And, um, Eventually, we got her into the house. We got her uh, into a detox uh, house for about a week. And during that week, we managed to get her onto a medically supervised uh, um, withdrawal program. Okay, so they managed to get her onto a withdrawal program, but I'll bet it must have been a roller coaster ride. Yeah. And the withdrawal program was temporary, effectively, because the hard drugs were replaced with a kind of morphine, which is brutal. And Lucy's parents saw this window of calm in that period. But although they were hopeful that they could get their daughter into a proper detox program, the government ones are their only option, because otherwise it's $9,000 to $20,000 a month to go through these programs. So in that window, um, unfortunately, Lucy missed her friends on the street. She went to see them again and she immediately fell back into doing crack with them. And a few days later, she'd just reappear at home having lost weight, shaking, and her parents would take her back in the house. She'd sleep for 24 hours, 36 hours, and she'd wake up wanting more. And you hear that. That is all that addicts can think about, just getting more drugs. So what did 22-year-old Lucy's parents do? Her dad did not feel that they had much choice. I started getting into her world with um, taking her out to meet the dealers, um, purchase, um, you know, the street drugs, we had them tested, um, found a source that, you know, seems clean and made an agreement with her that, um, you know, until we could get her into a recovery program that we would, um, you know, continue to, supplier and and you know her part of the bargain is that she stays at home where we you know we have access to her and um you know so on a daily basis i i go out with her to quote unquote score what is bringing is a level um you know we have her at home we know where she is she's not out you know god knows where in the meantime, my wife and I are trying to find a uh, program to get her in and, uh, you know, and there's forms to fill out. There's people to talk to, there's doctors to talk to and, you know, and, and the whole time we have, uh, you know, a young woman that's in bed and can, you know, doesn't really function, um, at a level that allows her to do that. 
Okay, so some people will hear that and they're going to go, what? The dad did what? Yes, he took his daughter to get drugs. He met the dealers himself. He got them tested. He said if he didn't, he feared that she was going to take toxic supply from the street. And he told me that the alternative is uh, really scary. 22-year-old Lucy met a random dealer just two weeks ago who sold her toxic drugs. They were laced with benzos. She overdosed in the house. Her parents had the most terrifying night of their lives as they watched her lose color and oxygen. Luckily, paramedics revived her, but people are going to hear this and they're going to say, okay, surely she could go into a program. But her dad told me what program. There's no beds. There's no system to take her in, that there are huge wait lists and that she's a young woman of small stature. Her dad said to me, how long do you think she would last out there on the street if that was the answer? But really, he said that she wants help. They want her in a government care program that could help her, but they can't get a bed. In my job in construction, I'm used to working with bureaucracy, you know, dealing with, you know, permitting and inspections and so on and so forth. But, you know, that process is different and that there's a path to follow. You know, you may not like the outcome, but there's a path to follow. And this, there just seems to be no um, organized path or, or way for us to access the help that she needs. And So um, you don't know what the path is into care? No, we don't. Even right now, like we're sitting here and, you know, this is, this is a week and a half out from this incident. And, and, uh, you know, we're still trying to get, um, you know, we have a doctor again, that's, that's trying to get her onto a, 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 you know, medically supervised withdrawal program. And, um, you know, and, and she's phoning, you know, a rehab center on a daily basis in Westminster, try to get her name sort of front and center with the, uh, admissions people. You know, because I guess, you know, part of the part of the journey into the into help is that, they, you know, they, they got to want to they got to want to go into it. And, and you know, part of the the burden of, you know, proof that they put on these kids is that they phone every day to check and see if there's a bed. And, and and this is the heartbreaking part is that, you know, we have a kid that's ready to go and we have a system that's basically imposing these rules on her. I can't get mad at the, you know, at the people at the shelters because, you know, we're in the program that run these programs because I'm sure that they're inundated and, um, you know, they're just doing what they can with, you know, with what resources they have. So are you saying there's no bed for your daughter? Exactly. That's basically what this amounts to. Oh man, Roger, this story is so heartbreaking. They must be at their wits end. They are, Simi. And, you know, this is a very loving father, a very loving mother as well. And they're supporting her so much. They wondered aloud to me, um, who could possibly navigate this system without all of that support and care? Right? I mean, that's what this girl has, and it's still not enough. Yeah, that is the shock. And not everybody has that. Hardly anybody has that, really, at some point. Hardly anyone has that. Yeah, exactly. It's just a really heartbreaking situation. It is. Uh, Raji, thank you so much for that. Thanks, Simi. You know, earlier in the show, we were talking about a protest that happened over the weekend in Penticton, where a group there is hoping to get, you know, the government to put together some kind of jobs bank where if people want to uh, get out of industries that aren't good for climate change. They'd like to find jobs that are good, that will be working towards helping people deal with climate change. And I thought that's an interesting idea. Well, staying on that topic, we thought we'd mention, you know, yesterday was something called Overshoot Day 
in the U.S. and Canada. What is that? Well, that marks the day each year when North Americans have already consumed our share of Earth's renewable resources for the year. So how do we combat that? Well, that's something that our next guest is working on. It's Dr. Kai Chan, who's a professor and Canada Research Chair in Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Chan, thank you for being here. It's such a pleasure. Good morning. Is there something that we can do about this? Like, how do you combat something? Because that seems like a huge mountain. It, it is a big problem, for sure. And, you know, and it especially seems large when we think about it in individual terms. When you think about it, like, how can we make our lives fit into the kind of one planet living where we don't use up our share of the resources until the end of the year? And the answer is that when, when we're in a an American or a Canadian context, that's actually impossible to do as an individual. No matter what you do, your per capita, so the, the part of the government and the systems around us, the infrastructure, the roads, all that that we're responsible for is already beyond one planet living. So the answer then is that we have to, we have to work for social and system change that is, in, that is consistent with that kind of sustainable pathway. Um, and, and that means going way beyond just buying things differently, recycling and composting. It means actually working to change some of the mindsets that are at the root of the problem, including overconsumption and this idea of infinite economic growth. And, and that's going to take a different kind of approach than what we're used to. Okay. What do you mean a different kind of approach? What would that look like? Well, so, you know, when folks got excited about climate change back, you know, in the late te- teens, right, culminating in all the climate marches in 2019, people were taking to the streets just to raise awareness about climate change. And that's a really great first step. But then the next thing that we've got to do is we've got to be concrete in our demands. We've got to rally together. And we we have to use science to help guide us as to what we want to ask for, what seems consistent with that sustainable future, and then how to go about achieving that effectively. And so far, we haven't we haven't had that combination of this like swell of popular concern guided by the science about both what to ask for and how to go about it. Hmm. So okay, how do we do that? Like, that? How do we figure yeah. that out? Yeah, so some concrete examples of that are one piece is subsidies, right? So there's been a lot of talk about fossil fuel subsidies recently. And, and what those who are concerned about the climate crisis can get behind that and start to really put pressure onto politicians to make sure that we end fossil fuel subsidies and put that money towards a just transition, just as you led into it, right, with things like a jobs bank or retraining programs that allow people to get out of those industries. We've been stuck in this place of being really, you know, cemented our kind of future, our Canadian future to the future of oil and gas. And it's going to take some hard work to get out of that. And one key piece of that is no longer giving money to fossil fuel companies to extract more fossil fuels from the ground. But we've got to do the same thing, not just with fossil fuels, but also with agricultural subsidies, which are a huge amount of money that fuel what is mostly a pretty unsustainable enterprise. There are some really bright lights in agriculture, but much of the money goes towards unsustainable modes of, of production. Okay, well, what about agriculture, though? I know people talk about oil and gas, as you mentioned there, but what about agriculture? Yeah, so if you look at the way that money is given to, or that um, the costs are covered for agricultural producers, several of them, including the crop insurance program, 
are given in a way that encourages growing lots of the same kind of crop in a small area without other things around, right? And so what that means is that those are monocultures and that's industrial agriculture. And we know that that kind of farming is responsible for both the the large use of pesticides and also fertilizers, which then also spill out into our waterways, degrading our water and all the way down to the to the oceans and coasts. Um, And so what we need is to change those subsidies in a way that encourages much more sustainable ways of farming that have multiple species of of crops coexisting in the same space, covering the ground, preventing the loss of soils and the loss of those nutrients. And all that's possible. It's just not encouraged by the systems that we live in. Is, Is there a willingness out there? I feel like there is, like people would buy that, they would like to see that from their farmers, but is how difficult is it for farmers to change? It's hard for farmers to change when, when the money is telling them to operate in the old way of doing things, right? And, that, and that's why we can't expect the farmers to do it individually. And going to farmers markets and buying from those farmers who are trying to do the right thing anyway, that's an important step, but it's not going to change the system, right? When we take those kinds of private actions, we're really just one in eight billion. And that's when we feel like a drop in the bucket. That's when it feels hopeless, right? And so what we've got to do is just Band together behind the changes that would actually shift the whole system. And those insurance programs are just one of those examples. Right. Just like, one of the examples. And, but, and so what we're... Sorry, Dr. Shannon, I have to, to ask you. I had to ask. Yeah, like, we, like, we're talking about baby steps here because also like what's going on in the world right now with all these concerns and gas prices is, I mean, is this the time that you think people are going to be thinking about something like this? Or are they just worried about, you know, f- getting to work and feeding their family? Yep. Some people are going to be in that place. Absolutely. And, you know, and that's understandable. And those who have the brain space to take on a little more and recognize that the the reason that we're in this pickle is largely because our systems have not prevented us from getting here, right? Like our deep dependence on fossil fuels across the whole industry, that that's a product of decades of climate denial, not necessarily outright climate denial, but effectively climate denial in the way that we're running our country, right? And so if we had got working on these issues earlier, we would not be in a place where we're all suffering because, you know, the price of gasoline has jumped up 30 cents a liter or more just recently, right? So, you know, there's never a good time for this kind of change. It always feels like, you know, like like we're we're stuck in this rut that we're in. And, and that's true for some of us. Some of us can't take this on. But those, those of us who can, now's the time to band together. Hmm, so interesting. All right, Dr. Chan, thank you for your time. Thank you.